This is the America's Quarterly Podcast. I'm Brian Winter. Guyana's colossal oil find has led to difficult questions about whether the country can avoid the so-called resource curse and the effects on climate change as well. On today's podcast, an overview of this South American country and how it's handling the challenges of abundance. I feel unambiguously that that strategy, using the wealth to diversify, is superior to saying we're not going to contribute to global climate change, so we're not going to produce petroleum. I can't bring myself to say that, given you know my experience in the country, knowing the level of poverty that is in the country, that just that just doesn't work for me. But as we have been just toying with each other, the question of how difficult this is, it's difficult in many ways. I'm not sure anyone realizes just how much oil Guyana has. Only eight years ago, oil companies discovered offshore oil reserves now believed to total at least 11 billion barrels. That would be a lot for any country in the top 20 worldwide. But when you consider that Guyana is a country of just 800,000 people, that means that Guyana now has more oil reserves on a per capita basis than any other country in the world. And it's not even close almost three times as much as Saudi Arabia, to give you an idea. This has raised all kinds of questions about the country's future, whether all this oil will ultimately be a blessing or a curse that we explore in America's Quarterly's new special report on Guyana, which you can find on our website, americasquarterly.org. Today on the podcast, we're going to explore several areas of this I think, fascinating subject, including what Guyana should ultimately do with the billions of dollars and royalties already starting to pour in. What will the effect be on a country that was previously one of the poorest in South America? Can its economy and its democracy resist the so-called resource curse that has hit so many countries, including neighboring Venezuela? And what are the ethical and environmental considerations of betting so hard on oil, given that the Caribbean is one of the regions hit hardest by climate change? Our guest is one of the best known experts on the economies of the Caribbean, Professor Jay Mandel, Professor Emeritus of Economics at Colgate University and a member of the University of Guyana Green Institute Advisory Board. Jay lived in Guyana for a year and has traveled there often over the years. Jay, welcome to the AQ Podcast. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Jay, you said in our new special report on Guyana that Guyana seems especially vulnerable to the resource curse. Why do you think that? The resource curse is very powerful. It acts as a magnet to all of the petroleum sector would act as a magnet to all of the resources of the country. And that essentially is what the resource curse is about. It interferes with and impedes the process of di economic diversification. Now, 
in order to effectively resist that magnetic effect that occurs from petroleum to all sectors of the economy, the government has to put in place purposeful policies to encourage entrepreneurs in the society not to respond to market signals. Now, that's a very hard thing to do. And it takes a cadre of professionals to assess the situation in the country and to figure out how actually that can work. Now, Guyana is, and was, of course, before petroleum, one of the poorest nations in the Western Hemisphere. And what that actually means is, aside from the numbers, is that it is bereft of the quality, high quality of educated technicians and sophisticated policymakers that is associated with economic development. Guyana is a classic example of the brain drain, and that very brain drain handicaps the country in its effort to counter the magnetic effect of petroleum. Jay, I want to admit that I am part of a universe of people who didn't really know much about Guyana prior to this discovery of oil a couple years ago, even though I'm someone who's been working with Latin America and South America for almost 25 years now. I was surprised to discover that prior to oil, the country's top exports were gold and rice. (laughs) I mean, what else can you tell us that might convey just how important this discovery of oil is and how much of a game changer it is for this country? Okay, so let's go back to the beginning of what you just said. Yes, it is true that Guyana is part of South America, northeast corner of South America. But really, culturally and politically, it doesn't belong to Latin America. It is part of the British Caribbean. Point number two, the other export that you didn't mention is alumina. They once did alumina. They now only do bauxite. This is the... Bauxite is the raw material for aluminum. So this was a country that, as you correctly say, rice, sugar, bauxite were the export from from the country. All the agricultural products are low-income products, and Diana is a high-cost producer of sugar. And so they've lost that market. The market they had for sugar only existed because there were preferential tariffs that allowed them to produce high-priced sugar. There's a long history to why there was this concentration in these products, and it was further complicated by the fact that the country experimented with a version of socialism in the 1970s, particularly. And that's actually when I first taught at the University of Guyana. I taught at the University of Guyana in the 70s. And in the family, in our family, we refer to that as the year that we almost starved to death. So there is the legacy of colonialism. There is the legacy of this socialist construction, which really still informs why the country is still struggling with the legacy of poverty with now this overlay of petroleum. 
Well, and you mentioned brain drain earlier, and there are statistics suggesting that about half the population actually lives abroad, uh, mostly in the United States and Canada. This is a country that has struggled in its history with inflation. Uh, At one point, I understand that almost all of Guyana's fiscal revenue was earmarked to repay debts. Uh, How have you seen Guyana change over the years? Well, not much change occurred until the discovery of petroleum offshore. It was discovered in 2015, and the first exports occurred in 2020. And this has been transformative. We're still in the very early stages of it. But this has been a fantastic inflow of revenue to the government. Now, that's one of the strange or particularly important characteristics of petroleum. This is not revenue that goes broadly to the population. This is revenue which goes broadly to the government. And then it is the responsibility of the government to figure out how to allocate these funds. So the big, big change so far in the society has been that, namely revenue going to government means that it it now has the ability to do a variety of different things. Uh, When a similar thing like this happened in Trinidad many years ago, the prime minister was quoted as saying, money is no object any longer. And that is similarly the case with regard to Guyana. Most of it now has been devoted to infrastructure, building especially highways and buildings. The health sector has benefited from this. But it's a very peculiar and one-sided economic development because everything goes to the government. And then the problem of distributing it to the society is a second-order issue. When our managing editor, Jose Enrique Arrioja, was in Georgetown, uh, Guyana's capital, researching this piece, he interviewed so many people in the government as well as in the opposition, from the private sector and civil society. And what he heard was, yes, there are plans to build hospitals, schools. Uh, He also heard about plans for a new, quote-unquote, smart city outside of Georgetown with these uh, big ambitions, housing for 60,000 people, a new 18-hole golf course, an industrial park, and so on, which, you know, if you follow the history of resource wealth, uh, might set off some alarm bells. I mean, as you look at the government strategy so far for spending this wealth, How would you rate this government's efforts to do that so far while recognizing that this really would pose a challenge for any government dealing with this kind of uh, bonanza? For many years, the question of the resettlement of the Guyanese population has been on a back burner but discussed. Almost all of the Guyana population lives on a coastal plain. Other places are virtually unpopulated. The question of the new city has arisen because of what I call shocks, and these are population shocks. We're back to petroleum. Petroleum is going to attract a substantial inflow of people between the rise of the Atlantic Ocean because of global climate change 
and in the increased storms that will also be the result of global climate change. The coastal plain is really at risk. It's a little hard to put a time frame on this, but almost certainly in the near term, maybe by 2030, by 2035, something like that, the population of the coastal plain will be required to relocate. So I have three populations. One, the skilled people coming to the place, the unskilled coming to the place, and then the residents on the coastal plain who are being forced to leave. That has raised the problem of relocation. So you actually see a higher purpose to this smart city. You don't see this as just a vanity project by the government, as some people do. No, no, and I don't, I don't, I don't mean to do that as favorably as you just said, because I think that the way they constructed or envisioned Silica City appeals to only one of those three migratory processes that I was talking about. It does appeal to the technicians and engineers who will be coming to the country to fill those positions. It does not speak to the question of the low-skilled people who are coming to the country, nor does it speak to the people who are coming from the coast. So, I mean, it's a kind of way of responding, but I am, I think it's a an approach that fails to really meet these specific kinds of concerns that will emerge. Leaving aside the smart city for just a moment, how, how would you describe the government's treatment of this windfall from oil so far? It may be too soon to tell, but the Silica City experience is really one that responds to the needs of the industry, but probably insufficiently does. And that's why I have been emphasizing the question of the migrations, especially the migration from the coast. I think that that will be very important and has been, frankly, quite neglected. I mean, the scale of the wealth here is just astounding. This is more oil reserves now per capita than any other country in the world. It blows Saudi Arabia and Kuwait out of the water. And everybody knows at this point in history uh, just how much damage this can do, as well as how much help it can potentially bring if this is channeled the right way. And trying to sort that out, I think, would be hard for everybody. Is it your sense, looking at the economy as a whole, that some of this wealth is starting to be distributed among the general population? It's a very important issue, and there are people who are working, not, not me, but others who are working on the question of income distribution. Mostly what you hear in the press is not much of that has gone on. And that has led to a debate about the question of whether the revenues that are going to the government should be just distributed to the population, as, for example, occurs in Alaska, in the United States, where in a Republican state, there is a discussion about whether there should be a universal allocation from the revenue that's coming up, and, you know, separated with this kind of limitation shouldn't be more than 10% of the budget. I think it can be said that to date, much of the population has been disappointed 
with regard to the, what you're referring to with the, you know, the distributional consequences of, of the industry. Government officials told our managing editor that they were resisting so far these requests to essentially just cut people checks, um, in part because they didn't want to fall into what they see as the populist trap of other governments, including, I assume, the people next door in Venezuela, who provide a very powerful example of how oil wealth can take a country in the wrong direction, not just in economic terms, of course, but in terms of the damage that it can cause to democracy and institutions. As you look around the world, is there a country that you think could serve as a role model, even an imperfect one, for the current challenges that Guyana faces? I, I think the answer is no. <laughs> I hate to say that. <laughs> uh, mainly because of what we've already alluded to, how unusual it is for such a poor country to be confronted with such an influx of wealth the question that you raised, the question of whether it would be damaging to do a universal allocation of funds, I have a fairly strong view on this, which is that it would be a very desirable thing if you can develop an indigenous business class and an indigenous economy. And at the same time, I don't think it's inconsistent to say you can do something to ensure that the wealth is more fairly distributed in the country than would emerge simply from doing that. In other words, I want Guyanese entrepreneurs to be supported, promoted, subsidized even, and that would create a Guyanese economy which avoids the resource curse. But at the same time, a program of distributing some fraction of the petroleum wealth to the population. This is a very poor society, and doing so would be the simplest, fairest, quickest way of allevi alleviating that poverty. The importance of a diversified economy. I mean, that's pretty much exactly what President Ali told our managing editor, uh, Jose Enrique Rioja, what he wants for his country. He said, uh, we are not building an energy nation. We're building a diversified economy that is focusing on many areas of growth. And the president mentioned tourism, food production, industrial development, manufacturing, biodiversity services, kind of a view of a green economy overall. What are the potential pitfalls, though, that you see on the road to building something like that? The most important already existing industry that can be promoted is agriculture. Seen from the perspective of the Caribbean, not from the perspective of Latin America, but from the Caribbean, Guyana is often thought of as the breadbasket of the region. That is largely dependent upon the coastal plain. That's where agriculture is present in the country. And when, when there is a discussion of Guyana's being the breadbasket for the Caribbean, I'm afraid that the discussion avoids the fact that much of the coastal plain is going to be unavailable for agriculture because of the inundation from the sea and from the interior. Second is the question you mentioned of tourism. Yes, there is the possibility for the expansion of tourism in the country. It's limited. 
at the moment, there is very little infrastructure in the interior, which is what they are talking about. And it will take a long time, and I'm not so sure about modern facilities being deployed. Again, the question of the conflict with Venezuela is important in this regard, because investors who look at the situation don't know whether three-fifths of Guyana is going to disappear from Guyana, which is what the Venezuela claim is. The country will have to find either goods or services that can be supplied outside of the country. All small countries have to export. And it's not obvious ahead of time what those exports should be. So to go back to what the president of Diana was saying to you, yes, he knows that there needs to be um, the development of a diversified economy. But I think they have not sufficiently figured out the prior work that has to be done and the, the nature of the encouragement, the nature of the incentives that have to be provided, and specific information about what it looks likely these businessmen or women could undertake. It sounds to me, Jay, like you're very skeptical about this economy's ability to diversify and have a future that is anything different from being a petrostate. I mean, should we think of the future as being something like uh, Qatar and the Middle East, where, you know, you have a certain percentage of the society that is foreign born that comes in to deal with uh, some of these services around the oil industry? And then a general population that, at least on paper, is quite wealthy, but is living uh, to a large extent on government largesse. I think you read me correctly, but I think what I am bringing to this discussion is that in this way, Guyana resembles the rest of the Caribbean, where coming out of the colonial period, there was quite a bit of discussion about economic development. I mean, friends of mine have been very active in identifying strategies of economic development that hasn't been implemented. Some of the problem of economic development is sociological, namely the need to have constructed in the society institutions that facilitate collaborative efforts between the public sector and the private sector. And so my, I want to not so much put responsibility on individuals who are doing the wrong thing, but to place it in a broader context of this is a problem that, that at present for the Caribbean as a whole. And, and this is a particular manifestation of that problem, though written in much larger letters because of the role of petroleum. We look ahead into the future, Jay, and the government recognizes that it has a relatively short window to pull this oil out of the ground and then invest it in a way uh, that would help its population, partly because of climate change and decarbonization. Now, there is the central paradox of a country like Guyana uh, in a part of the world that is one of the hardest hit by climate change. That's the Caribbean betting so hard on a carbon based fuel. So there's that paradox, but it's also part of the development challenge because the window to really exploit oil is going to be relatively short. How do you see this? I live that experience. 
I'm on the advisory board of an institution at the University of Guyana called the University of Guyana Green Institute. It's run by a former student of mine, Thomas Singh, and that is exactly the issue that we deal with all the time. We had debates within, this is called UGGI, the University of Guyana Green Institute. We had debates about the morality of doing exactly what you just described. I feel unambiguously that that strategy, using the wealth to diversify, is superior to saying we're not going to contribute to global climate change, so we're not going to produce petroleum. I can't bring myself to say that, given you know my experience in the country, knowing the level of poverty that is in the country, that just that just doesn't work for me. But as we have been just toying with each other, the question of how difficult this is, it's difficult in many ways, not least of which is something we haven't talked about, but Guyana has a reputation, and in fact, it is also part of the Caribbean experience about corruption. I mean, if all of the wealth goes through the state, then the people who are positioned to make policy are under an awesome incentive to take some for themselves. That's, by the way, part of the reason that I think a universal grant is a desirable thing. It will take some of the money away from the state and therefore reduce to some extent the temptation or at least the ability to engage in, in corruption. I've enjoyed this conversation, Jay, because I think um, many people, including those that we interviewed for this issue, seem eyes wide open about the challenges here and they're enormous, but they seem to at least see some chance of success uh, in terms of the development of Guyana. Well, I don't want to say I have no hopes in that regard, but I do want to say that my experience, I mean, I taught else all over the Caribbean, and in particular, Jamaica and Trinidad and Tobago, to some extent, have gone through experiences that resemble what Guyana will experience. In Jamaica, I had my first job teaching at the University of the West Indies in Jamaica. In Jamaica, the temptation from tourism resembles the temptation for petroleum, not, not with regard to the size of the scale, but that it was so easy to do tourism in Jamaica. Trinidad and Tobago was a petroleum producing, still is a petroleum producing country, and they failed to use the wealth that they experienced to diversify. The pessimism that you're hearing from me is a pessimism not so much about the players in Guyana, but that the strategy of economic development that would be required has not been developed elsewhere and Guyana shares that. Jay, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It has been a great pleasure for me to engage in this conversation. Thank you for listening to the America's Quarterly Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review, give us a rating, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
The America's Quarterly Podcast is produced by Luisa Franco and edited in partnership with Human Group Media.